uh, why don't we try this? Go ahead and recycle it now. And let's see if we can beat Panasonic to the punch. It's so nice of them to give us this message all morning long. So we said as we came in this morning, we didn't know why, but the projector was randomly just shutting down during the first service, and now they're telling us why. So about every 10 minutes, we will go into darkness, and then we'll come back into light. How spiritual, how wonderful. So um, you have one of these as you walked in this morning, on, and the inside is a card. And I want to call attention to one thing on there. So go ahead and put your name on it. That would be great. And any other information you want, first-timer, we'd love to know that you were here. But uh, next week is that week that is just wonderful. Someone in their absolute wisdom, I think, going back to Ben Franklin, said, give the people an extra hour. And so they gave us an extra hour. So we get this whole daylight savings thing going on, that extra night of rest, and just kind of this creative idea of why not use that in some way that's really... um, uh, redemptive. So maybe you'll use that extra hour to hang out with your kids or do something like that, kind of offering you that challenge. So if, if you'll at least give thought to that challenge, you can check that off in the ba- box in the box on the back of your card. That would be great. So theoretically, servers are coming now. They're getting ready to collect the offering. Uh, I guess that's going to do it itself today, too. It's going to be a fun day. Okay, so anyway, speaking of fun days, I, you know, I, I get this great perspective sitting up over here. I love it. Uh, perspective from the side of seeing worship happening. But one thing you may have missed this morning is this incredible silhouette of this drummer that's just going absolutely crazy over here, just giving his energy and everything he's got to God while he's drumming. And, you know, that's coming off of, I don't know if you're familiar with Jason Aubrey, but he's also the head coach over at Joliet West. And, you know, Friday night I'm watching the game by way of Twitter, and they get down to 18 seconds and they lose the game. And for a lot of people, honestly, if that's what happened to you Friday night, you'd be like... I'm just checking out for the weekend. I'll see you later. And instead, here he is just, you know, pouring out everything he has for God. And here's what I love about this. It matches so well the song that we sang this morning. It is easy right now to look at all the circumstances around us, election, cubs, you name it, whatever, look at all the circumstances around us and live there Instead of, like a bride, waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. So, my goodness, if we're going to make it through seasons like this, you got to keep your eyes up here. you got to keep your eyes looking to Christ. So, it's part of the reason we sing these songs, to make sure that we get that proper perspective all the time. Um, I just wanted to call your attention to this sheet of paper that you receive every week. This is low-tech. It will not go out in 10 minutes. The words will stay there all the time. So down the center column is the new stuff. If, you're, if you walk in and you just want to know what's going on this week, check out the center column. If you're newer to the church, you'll want to check out the left and right column because it kind of goes through the details of how a week works around here, what, what's happening around here. And the same with the backside. Uh, it gives you an idea of how you can enter a relationship with God and also tells you that at the end of every service, you can head over here to this table if you need and uh, spend time praying with somebody. So you have that opportunity to spend time in prayer. And just go ahead and look that over all the time. We don't literally read every announcement to you every week. We want you to be able to go ahead uh, and make that connection, but um, those things are there. So one of the things you'll see stepping up here in the next several months, really, we're working on just overall what, what some churches might call first impressions or 
guest relations, everything from getting people seated to, you know, greeting people around the church and that sort of thing, kind of putting a, a restored effort into that. And uh, that's going to be the, the, the person spearheading that is going to be Susan Beaker. So if, if that's a ministry area that you're just really intrigued by, you love that, uh, you may want to catch her at some point. Believe me, we'll be offering other opportunities for you to jump on too, but just kind of Watch what's going on, because we've got some, got some cool stuff going along the way. So what does the message say? We have nine minutes. That's enough time to show a video that's going to get us started on the morning. Kind of a little commercial. Hope you enjoy it. Some say it's the hardest job in the world. And let's be honest, most wouldn't last ten minutes in your shoes. They just don't have what it takes. But you keep showing up week after week. You're first to arrive and last to leave. You're not afraid to get your hands dirty. You've got work to do. Hero? Maybe. But that's not why you do it. You're here to change lives. And even a few diapers, if you have to. That's right. You're a volunteer nursery worker. You serve the smallest of us. But don't let size fool you. These kids are tough. Thanks, volunteer nursery worker. We couldn't do church without you. Now that's what I call a badge of honor. Oh, that's a great start to the morning. <clears throat> I know... I know some of you wish that we had this message up all the time, and instead of replace, replace lamp and whatever else it says, it would say, in 21 minutes, the sermon will end, and you can go home. No, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, but that video was a perfect lead-in to this morning, uh, because not, it's, not, uh, it's not telling you anything. We're not, Riley and I, no, there's no, no babies coming, no, no, so don't, don't, we had some people mistake that message in the, in the first service, don't go there, please don't send, don't give us a heart attack, um, oh, I'm all shaken up, but no, we, we have something going on in Southfield that we haven't had in a long time, it's really cool, it's babies, there are babies all over the place, oh, babies with chubby cheeks and you know, slobber, and yeah, they're, they're so cute when they're not yours, and we have babies back, and, and young families, and it's really cool because we, we kind of saw a transition. When we were at Rock Run over there on Black Road, we saw that we, we had an influx of young families with babies who have grown up to be better-looking babies, uh, but that kind of went away in the, in the junior high setting. With all the, the influx and craziness of being a portable church, we, we saw the, the young families kind of drift. And now, here we are right back into having young families and babies. It's really cool. Uh, we used to put the names of every new baby that was born up on the church sign. 
So kind of a celebration as a church family putting their name up on the church sign. And that is going to be an incredibly difficult task now. So if anybody's who, anybody really good at chiseling, getting names into rocks, if we fled, Fred Flintstone decided to show up today, uh, we want some names out there on the rock sign. Anyway, uh, you, know how, you know how to tell the difference between a first-time parent and a second or third-time parent? Other than the fact that they clearly love their firstborn just so much more. <laughs> first-time parents push their children to do everything quickly. As a firstborn, I can attest to that. Uh, they want their kid to walk by four months. They want, to speak, they want them to speak in complete, grammatically correct sentences by six months, do their laundry for the, or by their first birthday. And this is all, of course, while they're going through the process of already applying to prestigious universities like Harvard and Yale and the University of Illinois and Princeton. The pattern changes for repeat parents. They're second, third, fourth, God forbid, fifth and beyond. They don't care if their children don't walk until, eight, until 18 months. Why? Because then they don't have to chase them. They don't care if their kids don't talk until well after a year because, well, they just want some peace and quiet, right? But teaching your kids to talk is so much fun. There's a friendly competition that often goes down between mom and dad. You know, who's going to, or what's the first word going to be? Is it going to be mama or dada, right? Sometimes this friendly competition gets ugly, especially in competitive families like mine. Dad might sneak into the bedroom late at night, and while they're rocking baby to sleep, all he's repeating is da-da, da-da, da-da. And then he uses his technological prowess to, take, uh, to have a recording of himself on full loop that plays while the baby's asleep. So that hopefully when the baby wakes up, it's been drilled into the baby's head, da-da, I want da-da. Then mom is there, don't worry, she goes straight for the jugular. She uses guilt and fear. Remember who went through nine months of carrying you? That's mama. Remember who went through all the pain of delivering you? Mama. Who loves you the most? Mama. Who, where does your food come from? Mama. If you say dada, there will be no food. <laughs> Once mama and dada are mastered, then inevitably comes the next set of words. And unfortunately, uh, there are words we know all too well. Words like my, me, mine, and no. People go to their graves still saying the words that they first learned after mama and dada. My, me, mine, and no. These words mark them. You can see it on their wallet, on their checkbook, their car, their house, their time. These words define their lives. But I have to share an important insight with you today. You see, God, the most loving parent that ever has been, is, or will be, works with us for a lifetime to break us of these self-centered concepts, of this spirit, of this way of living life. God longs to hear two different words come from the lips of his children, yours and yes. Today, we're going to continue to look at the life of David. He's a man who, from his earliest days, had very little difficulty saying yours and yes to God. Now, there are areas in David's life, just like our own, that were completely messed up, but this wasn't one of them. David had a generous heart. He loved to give, and he loved to share. Unfortunately, many of us, including myself, 
We get defeated in this area of life, in the area of generosity. No, my, me, mine, and no have a stranglehold on not only our tongues, but our hearts. We believe that life is about acquiring and possessing and having, like a toddler repeating my, me, mine, and no. It flows naturally. In Romans 12, 2, we read, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But instead of listening to the Bible and following, how, following out um, its, its rules, we in 21st century America have become like Plato and allowed our culture to mold our hearts. So we've replaced yours and yes with my, me, mine, and no. Let's look at the genuinely generous heart of David. Luckily, because again, this is not an area of difficulty for him, we're going to get to look at several stories. But throughout these stories, there's a consistent, there's a consistent um, storyline. They illustrate that David has an extremely generous spirit. The first event we're going to look at today is in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 30. It demonstrates that a generous heart focuses on the needs of others more than personal discontentment. See, David at this point has a band of warriors made up of the distressed, the discontent, and the indebted. They establish a refugee camp. When they were away from their town, the Amalekites, a group of raiders, came and took everything they had. Not only their possessions, but their families, their wives, their children. They took everything. Listen to the reaction that they had upon their return. Starting in verse 4. They wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives were among those captured. David was now in great danger because all of his men were bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. At this point, again, if, if, if we have something similar, I mean, hopefully no raiders come today and take your family and all of your stuff. Uh, but most of us turn inward, right? We begin to lick our wounds and we feel debilitated by our pain. And we can only focus on ourselves. At this point, David could have done the same thing. He could have turned inward, feeling the pain of his own loss, because as we see, he lost, he lost his wives. And again, he's, he's struggling with the fear of the retribution of his own men, right? A natural person would focus on that, their own sense of discontentment, but not David. What's David's next move? We see that in verses 7 and 8. Then he said to the priest, bring me the ephod. So the priest brought it. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You surely will recover everything that was taken from you. Think about this for a second. David doesn't wallow in self-pity or focus on his own self-protection. David sees the pain of his own men. He feels it. And even though he's hurting too, he looks out for their best interests rather than his own. So they pursue. We go into verse 9. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to a brook. At this point, 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David con continued his pursuit with only 400 men. See, they started this march already exhausted. I mean, think about the, just the emotional exhaust of having everything that you love and that you have taken away from you in a moment's notice. But they still, they forged down, they pushed really hard for about 15 miles, and when they came to this creek, 200 men were just like, oh, I can't do it. I can't go any further. We need a break. So David lets them stay behind. In verse 11, we see an act of true generosity on the part of David. They come across a man, an Egyptian nonetheless, in the desert. 
Think about this for a second. If we know the stories from the Bible, uh, the Israelites and the Egyptians were, well, kind of like Cubs and Cardinal fans. They, were, they didn't get along, especially uh, during times like these. An Egyptian, they come across an Egyptian. They, they had enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. Jews were not naturally inclined to extend kindness to the Egyptians. The best that this Egyptian could hope for was that David and his men just left him to do his own in the desert. Like, just don't torture me. I, I won't bother you. You don't bother me. Just let me go. But instead, David helps the man. And this Egyptian's strength is restored. As it turns out, this act of generosity is immediately rewarded. For the Egyptian is actually a slave of the member of the Amalekite raiding party. And he's able to give David the exact current coordinates of the Amalekites. They eventually do battle for a full day with the Amalekites and get everything that they had stolen from them back, their families and all their possessions. As they return in triumph, the men cheer on the way back home. That, uh, they, they shout, the plunder belongs to David. They return to the creek where the 200 men had stayed behind. And there's a joyous reunion of family members. Then tension surfaces. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 22, we read, But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, They didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and their children and tell them to be gone. In their minds... The men who had stayed behind had done nothing to earn or deserve a stake in the claim that they had just taken. They hadn't done hand-to-hand combat for a full day with the Amalekites. They had stayed back in the ravine to rest. Why should they get anything? All they can see are these 200 undeserving parasites who will eat into their profits. So they say, no way. Can't have it. What a worldly attitude, right? You can hear them saying it. My. Me, mine, no. Now we get the first of three glimpses into what motivates a generous heart. Verses 23 to 25. But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike. Those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this a decree and a regulation for Israel, and it is still followed today. What motivates David's generosity? Genuine gratitude, a grateful heart. See, in this event, David teaches us that a generous person is energized by genuine gratitude. The only reason that we have what we have is because of God and how gracious and generous he is. When David has a choice to make, his starting point is to think about how, ge- how generous and gracious God is. So he asks himself, how can I be generous and gracious like God my Father? Unfortunately, it's not like God that, or it's not God that most people want to be like. We can't keep up with God's generosity, so instead we want to keep up with the Joneses. We work at jobs that we don't like, to make money that we don't need, to buy stuff that we can't use, to put in a storage locker that we forget about. And ultimately, we just keep going in this cycle to catch up with the Joneses. You see, but then when you finally feel like you've made it, you've got it, you've caught up with them, well, they're ready to refinance. And now you've got a whole other cycle to start over and catch up with them again. 
You know the best way to beat the Joneses? It's to declare them champion today. Raise the white flag. And no, I know that people in Chicago right now have this understanding that raising a white flag means you've won. No, we're raising a plain white flag, a surrender, right? We, are, we, we need to stop comparing ourselves to them. Declare them the winner today. The ironic part here is that in forfeiting a battle, which sounds like a loss, you've actually won the war with the world. My, me, mine, and no loosen their grip on your heart and your soul. Generosity is motivated by gratitude. Keeping up with the Joneses is fueled by jealousy. A generous heart focuses on the needs of others rather than personal discontentment. This perspective can only be attained by those who live in a state of genuine gratefulness. The next story that we're going to look at is found in 2 Samuel chapter 24. From this, we learn that a generous heart is always searching for opportunities to give. People motivated by my, me, mine, and no are always looking for opportunities to acquire. But the generous heart is always looking for opportunities to give. Second Samuel 24, we learn of a plague in Israel. It's a pretty bad one. It's devastating. God brings a halt to the plague when it's actually about to take over Jerusalem. David wants to know what he should do at this point. So he inquires of the Lord through a man named Gad. Let's pick it up in verse 18. That day Gad came home to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. David had received specific instructions from God and he fully intended to obey. He'll go build an altar at the exact threshing floor that God had prescribed. There's one complicating factor here. It belongs to somebody else. But I promise you this. David's not going to let that get in the way of doing God's work. Verses 20 to 23 read, When Araunah saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord the king? Araunah asked. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop this plague. Take it, my lord the king, and use it as you wish, Araunah said to David. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. And you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar there. I will give it all to you, your majesty. And may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. When David meets Arauna, he offers David the land as well as the supplies for the sacrifice. Here, they're yours. I need to stop here for a second. I can't speak for you necessarily, but I know I can speak for me. When this if, if I was in David's shoes and this happens, my immediate thought is, wow, isn't God amazing? Here he, he told me what to do. With, he gave me the exact instructions. And when I showed up, this guy around, it just says, yeah, here, have it. I didn't have to do any of the work. He gave me the supplies for the, for the altar. He gave me the supplies for the offering. Sweet. God is amazing. Fortunately, this is the story of David and not of Brian. As we get into verse 24, King David replied to Arauna, No, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. From the my, me, mine, and no perspective, this move makes no sense at all. Think about it. David is buying from Arauna land that is 
technically God's so that he can give back to God what he just bought from Arauna. Just cut out the middleman, right? Why not? Get a good deal on the sacrifice. Here's the second glimpse into a generous heart. In this moment, David teaches us that a generous person is characterized by genuine sacrifice. David recognizes that we can't give that which is not rightfully ours. By its very definition, sacrifice means I'm giving something up. To give something up that belongs to someone else is not a sacrifice. It's a deal, right? So that's like if your kid takes your credit card and goes to the store and swipes it, buys a $100 gift card, and then comes back to their friend and says, look, I got you something. No, you didn't. That that means nothing, right? That gift, there was no real sacrifice there because the money was coming from the parent's bank account. God wasn't playing, let's make a deal. God wanted David to sacrifice. You know, in a real sense, David was not just giving God a sacrifice. He was giving God his heart. He was saying, it's not my, me, mine, and no. It's yours and yes. When I give of my possessions, I'm giving a part of myself. And every time I do that, my heart gets a little freer from the grip of stuff. A little more devoted to God. And I want that kind of heart. So I want to pay for it. I want to pay for the things that I sacrifice. I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. This is so countercultural. Our world is never looking for chances to give. Instead, they're looking to acquire. Just look at the ads. Whether it's for the latest movie or for whoever's running for president. They're always looking to acquire. Even in our kids' cartoons. Finding Nemo, the classic, right? There are some characters in Finding Nemo. The seagulls. Say it with me. What do the seagulls say? Perfect. Mine, 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 mine. And yeah, the tenth time you see that movie, it's no longer cute. It's annoying, right? That's what we do to God. That's what we do to our world. Mine, 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 mine. We're constantly looking for what can I get. Our world is obsessed with opportunities to acquire. But the heart of a Christ follower, a generous heart, is always on the search for opportunities to give and to give sacrificially. Let's look at the final aspect of a generous heart. We've seen that a generous heart focuses on the needs of others rather than personal discontentment. And we've seen that a generous heart is always searching for opportunities to give. In our final story, we're going to learn that a generous heart sets in motion a spiritual dynamic of giving that is an unstoppable force. This dynamic is unleashed in the heart of the giver, in the heart of the receiver, and the heart of the onlooker, as well as the heart of God. Let's look at our final story. Flip with me to 1 Chronicles Chapter 29, King David turned to the entire assembly and said, My son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the Lord God himself. Using every resource at my command, I have gathered as much as I could for the building of the temple of my God. Now there is enough gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wood, as well as great quantities of onyx and other precious stones, costly jewels, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. And now, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all 
of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This, in the addition to the building materials I have already collected for his holy temple, I am donating more than 112 tons of gold and 262 tons of refined silver to be used for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings and for the other gold and silver work to be done by the craftsmen. Now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? Then the family leaders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the generals and the captains of the army, and the king's administrative men all gave willingly. The passage then lists all the people who gave and what they gave. And then we get back to verse 9 by saying, The people rejoiced over the offerings, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and King David was filled with joy. A generous heart sets in motion a spiritual dynamic of giving that is an unstoppable force. A generous heart sees giving as an opportunity rather than, than an obligation. Jesus sums it up in Luke 6.38. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. Freeze. That is not saying that if you give everything you have, you're going to get everything back. All right? This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not a pyramid scheme. So get that out of your head. Okay? He's defining a spiritual principle instead that's inevitable when we are generous. See, something great happens when we give. Because in reality, giving is at the very core of our faith. It's one of the basic operational principles of the kingdom of heaven. It's at the core of God, who he is, and what he does. In this event, David shows us that a generous person is revitalized by genuine giving. A a sacrificial, wholehearted giver is unstoppably contagious and overwhelmingly joyful. Just look at Rethink Christmas. One year, we, in one year, we sent out over 5,000 gifts. How many of us received those gifts? Uh, maybe you're here today because you received a gift. You know, you opened up, you pulled down a box of Cheerios, and there's a $10 gift. That's cool. But we were joyful. We, it was a celebratory season, not because we were receiving, but because we were generously giving. And we put our time and our efforts into genuine giving. A sacrificial, wholehearted giver is unstoppably contagious and overwhelmingly joyful. David gave, not only of the the national treasury, but of his own personal possession. He gave sacrificially and wholeheartedly. Then he challenges everybody. Hear the challenge in a different version in, in the NIV. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? He doesn't challenge anybody to match or beat his generosity. Nor does he simply ask, now what can you give today? Like a TV preacher would. Instead, he challenges them to give things. One specific thing. Give yourself to God today. He's asking, who's willing to leave behind my, me, mine, and no? The ways of the world. And instead, choose the way of Christ. The way of the cross by saying yours and yes. His generous example unleashes the unstoppable spiritual dynamic of giving. His example is unstoppably contagious. First, David gives. Then the leaders see David give so that 
So then they give. Then the people see the leaders give, and they give. Generosity is contagious, and contagious actions lead to great joy. The world teaches that joy is all to be had in the getting and the receiving and the holding. But the fact is that real joy comes through generosity, not through the accumulation of stuff. How is David able to be so generous? The grip of my, me, mine, and no is not strangling him. His perspective is, God, everything's yours. So I'll say yes to whatever you ask. This perspective leads him to be able to give willingly. This word is used repeatedly in the text, and it's for good reason. Only a heart that gives willingly can truly be called a generous one. You see, if we're giving under threat, it's not generous, it's forced. If we're giving out of guilt, that's not generosity, it's a grudge. If we're giving out of duty, it's not generous, it's drudgery. Only a heart that gives willingly can be described as generous. You want to know something ironic? We are afraid to live generously because we think that having more stuff is the secret to happiness. But again, it's just the opposite. Only when we give freely do we experience overwhelming, overwhelming joy. Because think about it for a moment. How many greedy people do you know in your life? If you have to, close your eyes. Get, that one, get at least one person in your mind. Okay? Get at least one person whose only focus is accumulating stuff for themselves, whether that be money, power, stuff, whatever. Are they happy? Are they genuinely joyful? No. It's because the happiest people are not the people who hoard and have, but the people who live to give. You know who gets the greatest joy from giving? God. Think of the joy he must experience when one of his children, one of us, who only ever before said, my, me, mine, and no, instead learns the words yours and yes. When that child rejects his or her natural inclination, the way of the world, and instead imitates the generous nature of his or her loving heavenly father, God must get a huge smile. Picture it this way. Your kids overhear you having a small conversation slash fight with your spouse. Money's tight. Mortgage payment's overdue. You got two car payments that you can't make because, well, it's 20 years later and you're still paying off student loans. You don't know how you're going to pay for groceries. And that causes tension, right? So, being a little, a little turned and upset by this, your child goes upstairs, breaks open the piggy bank, pulls out the, the dollars that they crumpled up to jam in there. It's only three bucks. They, they count the change. 17 cents. So they're bringing 317, they put it in their hands. And kind of timidly, they walk down the stairs and they come up to you and without even saying a word, kind of look and hand it to you. What's your reaction? Is your reaction, sweet, now we can go to Olive Garden. Is it did you steal that from me? Is it, how much more do you have up there? No. Instead, it's going to put a smile on your face, right? Because they gave everything that they had to help the cause. Again, that $3.17 is still going to leave you short on bills. It's not going to be the difference maker. But the difference maker comes from the actions of the child. 
you are still overwhelmingly joyful for this gift because although it's not enough money, he or she again was willing to give everything they had and while it's not in proportion to what you need, that heart, that love, that generous heart was enough to make you smile. That's the kind of joy that our Father in Heaven experiences when we reflect the generosity of His heart. What's it going to be? My, me, mine, no? A grabby, clutchy, hoarding heart? Or yours, and yes, open hands and free hearts. A heart that is after the heart of God is a heart that is constantly growing in generosity. A generous heart says, God, everything I have is yours. I'll say yes to whatever you ask. Let's pray. God, we thank you for everything that we have. And while that's different for everyone in this room, we we thank you for shelter. We thank you for cars, technology, family. We thank you for everything that we have. But God, We thank you even more for the example of David. Someone with a truly overflowing, generous heart to remind us that it's not about what we have, what we do with it. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to this message today. That we would look for opportunities to give generously rather than to take and acquire Help us to live out your plan, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to be turning to communion, really an act in which God showed us tremendous generosity, right? Gave us, literally gave us of himself, gave us his son. And so we'll be going to one of the four stations around the room. There are two at the back, two at the sides. You'll go there in a couple of moments and bread and cup are there. Take communion and just celebrate the generosity that God has extended toward you. For our time of reflection and silence, I'd like you to just think about this. I want to put a little twist on it. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about generosity, especially in church, people think we're talking wallets, purses, checkbooks, debit cards, all that sort of stuff. And the reality is generosity is so much bigger than our resources in that regard. It really is a generosity of ourselves. It's consecrating ourselves to God. So I want to give you some ideas that you might, during the silence, own and say, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm committed to that this week. Or maybe you'll think of one on your own that you'll say, God, this is, this is my commitment to generosity in the coming week. So think about this. What, what if we were to, this week, be incredibly generous with our words, both in terms of encouragement and compliments? I mean, to give encouragement and compliments, sometimes you have those people, you're like, oh, I don't want to say something to them. They'll get a big head. Why don't you risk the big head? Just go ahead and risk it. Be, be just lavishly generous with your encouragement and your compliments, even in moments that it just does not seem like the natural thing to do. Uh, what, if, what if you were incredibly generous with your schedule this week? Because I know all of our schedules from sunup to sundown, they are packed. And a person will call and they'll say, I need help. And you go, man, I'll pencil you in uh, after the first of the year. That'll, that'll work. What if we said, you know what, I'm just going to push aside this thing I'm doing right now and I'm be incredibly generous with the time that God has given me. What if we did that? What if you were incredibly generous with um, listening? You know, maybe you have someone in your life, you, you know how this works, you could say what they're saying in three words and it would be done. 
and four paragraphs later, they're still going on. And you're just like, yep, 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 talk, talk. You're wanting to hit the fast-forward button, all that sort of stuff. And they can see your impatience. And so what do they do? Add another paragraph. What What if you instead sat and patiently, quietly listened, took it in, and received them for who they are instead of the adjustment you want to make to their life? What if you did that? You see all these different ways that we could be generous with another person? What if our generosity was just silent presence? To just be there with someone and not offer advice and not fix it and not make it all right for them, but to just say, I'm here for you, I'm here for you right now. So in the moment that we have of just being quiet in the presence of God, would you make a commitment this week to a form of generosity that involves you? Not just something you're going to hand off to somebody, but that involves you, giving of yourself. And then we'll come out of that with a prayer that we're going to pray together. I have some words for you to pray, and I'm going to just I'm going to read the prayer, and then I'm going to give it to you a line at a time for you to pray back. It says, "Lord, teach me to be generous, to serve as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not ask for reward, except that of knowing I do your will." Let's go ahead and pray this together. Lord, teach me to be generous to serve as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heat the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not ask for reward, except that of knowing I do your will.
Once and 